All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our Foundations of the Faith class. This is Sacrament of the Altar, Part 2. Last week we covered Part 1. I'll do just a very brief review. But first, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Last week, we did a brief introduction to the sacrament of the altar. We talked about the various names for the sacrament of the altar, including Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, etc., the Eucharist, etc. Um, we took a look at the picture on the top of page 28 in the 2017 edition of the Small Catechism. And if you happen to be in that version, you can turn to page 28 now for what's coming. If you're in another version, we're just at the, uh, the second question in regard to the sacrament of the altar. And we spent some time looking at the opening statement. The way of the catechism is there's an opening statement given and then there's a scriptural support given. We took a look at the opening statement and specifically what that meant in the context in which it was written, recognizing that those words were penned back in uh, 1529. And so we need to take into account what those words mean in context so that we don't come out of it with all sorts of misunderstandings. So from the top, what is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Again, very detailed explanation of these lines given in last week's class. Where is this written? The holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, right? And we talked about how this is a conflation of all the biblical texts. We bring it all together so that we lose none of the key parts. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All right? So, in terms of understanding the context of this, very frequently, and we touched on this before, in, in our context here in Southern California and South Orange County, we're surrounded by, broadly speaking, evangelicalism. We're surrounded by Christians who don't have a sacramental understanding of, of the scriptures or an understand, uh, sacramental understanding of the faith in Jesus Christ. So what we have frequently done is simply opened up the words of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood, and kind of uh, 
tried to make our case from that point going forward. And to be sure, a great case can be made. There are, there are Greek words, or if you want to get a little more sophisticated, Aramaic words for sign or symbol or symbolizes or signifies that Jesus most certainly could have used if he wanted to say, this bread symbolizes or this bread signifies my body. But he doesn't. He uses the Greek word is. This bread is my body. Um, this cup is my blood. So, while we are accustomed and, and well and good for us to simply stand and, and hold firm on Christ's words, one thing that can happen to our understanding of the Lord's Supper as we do that long enough is it becomes atrophied. We ourselves kind of lose the biblical context and perspective of these words of institution. It's not as if Jesus was walking by the Lake of Galilee one day, thinking to himself, well, the end is coming soon. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be raised by my Father from the dead. Then I'm going to ascend into heaven and send the Holy Spirit. What's one last thing I could do to really trick my disciples? What's, what's one last thing I could do to perplex the church for at least 500? Oh, I've got it. I've got it. I'm going to take this thing which is obviously not my body, bread, and say it is my body. I'm going to take this thing that is obviously not my blood, the wine, and say this is my blood. Haha, that'll be fun. Enjoy. Is that what our Lord's doing? No. The origin of this isn't the first century. That's the key. To really thoroughly understand the Lord's Supper, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures. Maybe to just take a shortcut for the sake of time. What is the sin that leads our race into slavery to death and the devil? Eating. <laughs> so that's how far back it goes. By eating, we fell. God is, God is one who loves symmetry. And sometimes it's a rather complex symmetry, but it's a symmetry. We <laughs> fell by eating. How are we going to be restored? By eating. If eating, if through eating came sin, God's going to arrange it that through eating comes forgiveness of sins. And if through eating comes death, then through eating is going to come eternal life. Yeah, so, so already, already. Now we can think about this even more deeply, the way the church fathers thought about this. And, and this was not lost upon Luther. Maybe it's been lost upon us as of late for, for whatever reason. I, I do not know. It doesn't matter. But the church for many, many centuries, in fact, for well over a millennia, just thought in precisely these sacramental terms. How is it that Satan caused our race to fall by a tree? How is it that our race is restored by a tree? What, what, was, what, what was the mechanism in specific by which we fell? That we ate that which hung from the tree. So, how are we restored? We eat that which hangs from the tree. So, what hangs from the tree of the cross? Christ. Christ his body and blood. That's, this is the undoing of Genesis. The undoing of the deepest, of the deepest aspects of our, of our sin and fall into sin. So, again, it's not like Jesus just suddenly had this idea in the first century, in the last part of his ministry, and just thought, ha-ha, let's throw this out here. This goes all the way to the beginning, doesn't it? 
Now, a little bit of symmetry here in terms while we're still in Genesis, uh, or at least the early part of Genesis. So after that fall into eating, now many centuries pass, even though in the scriptures it's just a few chapters, but evil so overtakes the world that God destroys the world by means of a, a flood. And he's got, he's got Noah and seven others. But if you read the accounts together, read the Genesis account of, of Adam, uh, the early chapters of Adam, and then these, these chapters about Noah, and you'll see the linguistic parallels that are being drawn. Everything is wiped out except for Noah. Noah is to be a kind of new Adam, new and fresh start. Now, I hope that that's self-evident, but it's linguistically in the scriptures as well. Okay, no sooner than we have this new world, the water subsides, the dove brings back the olive branch, the ark grounds itself, we've got this brand new world. And what is, what is Noah, what is the new Adam of this world, what's the first thing he does? Sins, how does he sin? Drinking. So look, the first Adam and fount of the human race sins by eating. The second sins by drinking. Do you remember what happens to Adam and Eve as soon as they eat? Something happens to their eyes. They're opened and they realize what? They're naked. What happens as soon as Noah drinks? He realizes, well, <laughs> he's naked because he is. He gets naked. Yeah. So look at, these, look at these parallels. Look at these parallels. I mean, those are, those are written in intentionally for us so that we can see these things. So at the foundation of the human race is a fall by eating and another fall by drinking. And so there's going to be a restoration of eating and drinking. And just as Noah falls by the fruit of the vine, so by the fruit of the vine are we going to be restored when Jesus takes the fruit of the vine and says, this is my blood. Okay, so... So in other words, the Lord's Supper, now, now we've traced it all the way back to Adam and Eve. We've traced it all the way back to Noah. And again, as we did with baptism, we're going to skip over a number of other texts that could suffice uh, to teach much about the Lord's Supper. But if we simply jump to the Exodus, where does the Lord's Supper appear in the narrative of the Exodus? Or let me put it this way, where is the first place it appears? Passover. Now, very briefly, look back at your catechism. Our Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. What's the context of that night? What are they gathered there celebrating? Passover. Passover. Exactly. So, there's, there's proof positive that Jesus is understanding what he's going to do in the Lord's Supper in the context of the Passover. All right. Well, what are the major elements of the Old Testament Passover? Maybe easiest, simplest to just keep in our minds the original Passover. You remember the final plague? The angel of death is going to come over and he's going to strike the firstborn of everyone who does not have what? Amen. Yeah, the lamb's blood on the doorway. So the Passover lamb is to be taken. There's very specific instructions regarding this. I talked some about it in my sermon today, in fact. Um, but he's to be, this, this lamb is to be unblemished, male, what else? Unblemished, male, he's not, firstborn, thank you, firstborn, that was the other I was thinking of. Yeah, no broken bones throughout the entire process, no broken bones. Um, this, by the way, is, it's not, 
we don't gather this from the direct translation, but it makes sense to, to a Hebrew-minded person who's engaged in these, but the idea of roasting the lamb, remember that weird part like with its head and its everything, like, and it's everything all together? That's so that none of the bones are broken. Okay, so that's what's kind of hidden there, latent there. All right, so the lamb is then slain at twilight. His blood, as we said, is put on the, on the doorposts outside. And then what is done with the lamb? He's eaten. Mm -hmm. So a Passover lamb has a, this kind of unfortunate job description. He's slain and eaten. <laughs> Later on, St. Paul will say very plainly, Christ is our Passover lamb. Because Christ himself is slain and eaten. Ah, slain and eaten. Now, in... in um, Putting the blood out, they're saved from the angel of the death, the firstborn, and thus everyone else is saved from the sorrow of that. And so when our Lord Jesus, who, what was the first, the very first proclamation, public proclamation made about Jesus? Do you recall? Um, John the Baptist pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so now the Lamb of God says, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. Okay. In the context of the Passover, it's not strange that the one who is the Lamb would say, take, eat, this is my body. That's, that's not strange. I doubt that that gave uh, the disciples any cause for wonder or doubt. But what words almost certainly would have, at least given them pause, is this. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Now we had said that in the Passover, the blood was always put out on the doorway. That's part and parcel of a bigger teaching in the Old Testament scriptures, that the blood of the animals is never to be consumed. We know, that, we know from extra-biblical writings that the pagan peoples thought that the, that the life force or strength of the animal was, was in the blood of the animal. You know? So if you want to be strong, you go, I don't know, kill a buffalo or something and drink its blood. This is still around, by the way, in some of the cultures globa globally. And, uh, in fact, rather disturbingly, you saw this in the Middle East not long ago, where the, where the Muslims um, would, sort of, would, would take some of the blood of their defeated enemies and taste it. Yeah, it's that whole thing of like taking in the life force of what you've killed and now that strength is within you. It's a very, very deep pagan idea, very, a very deep idea ingrained in fallen humanity. Um, okay, so there is what we find in the Old Testament, a blood prohibition. Now this is true for all of their, for, all, for, for the whole of their dietary needs is you, you cannot drink the blood. Why? The life is in the blood. This comes right out of Leviticus. And it was all the more emphasized with the preparation of the Passover lamb. Again, you make sh absolutely sure that its bones are not broken and that you do not drink the blood, for the life is in the blood. What does it mean then when Jesus says, take drink, this cup is the new covenant in my blood? Don't drink because the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. Drink because why? The life is in the blood. Finally, this is the life that we were meant to drink. Okay. 
So that would have been the stunning thing to them, and yet it would have made sense in its own way. Now, while we're on it, it's a bit of a tangent, a bit of, of detail, but uh, nonetheless, it, it certainly fits here, and it's of interest. Not one of the Passover lambs can be broken, otherwise that's an invalid Passover lamb, not accepted. One of the most heart-stopping places in the entire Passion narrative, and I think we kind of miss it, is when the Pharisees, the rulers of the Jews, ask that the bodies be taken down because the next day is a Sabbath. You remember this? And so they're going to break the bones of, of the three who are being crucified. That will, um, I don't want to get into the gory details, but that will very quickly hasten death. You cannot push yourself up. Um, you know, check with your doctor, see if you're strong enough to do this. But if you have access to a pull-up bar, hang from the pull-up bar just, just with your arms. Now again, don't do that unless your doctor says it's okay. Uh, but you will immediately feel the stress and pressure and the difficulty it puts on you. And you're not crucified like this. You know, you're just hanging from a bar. So when your legs are broken, you can't push yourself up. You can't gasp for air. You very quickly suffocate and or your heart um, gives out because it's beating so rapidly trying to accommodate the lack of oxygen. Okay. Do you remember how Jesus was crucified? Was he on one of the sides? He was in the middle. Inexplicably. I mean, this, if nothing else convinced you of the fact that Christianity is true, this, this would have to. Inexplicably, they break the legs of the one. They pass right by the one in the middle. Why? I mean, I guess. Yeah, they think he's already dead, kind of. But, I mean... This might be a little macabre. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of an executioner. You don't care. You don't care if he looks dead or not. Or why not just give him a whack anyway? You'll find out real fast if he's dead or not. I mean, almost inexplicably, they pass over Jesus. He breaks the legs of the others. Then they come to Jesus. Not one of his bones is broken. And, and, and the Gospels pick up on this fact, and they tie two things together. Not one of his bones was broken, and the other Old Testament prophecy. See, this is an Old Testament prophecy. Jesus, in many places, is conscious of the fact that he's the Messiah, and in many places is consciously fulfilling the Scriptures. How can he fulfill this? He's laying there completely powerless, you know, on the cross, completely powerless. He, this is God who orchestrates this. So these two Scriptures, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on him whom they pierced. So in the very moment that his bones are not broken, they take the spear and pierce his side. It's unbelievable. How on earth do you orchestrate that? Two data points. Testimonies, prophecies made hundreds of years earlier, completely out of the power of Jesus or any of his disciples to manipulate, and this very thing occurs. Is, I mean, if you just sit back and think about it, it's enough to convince you of Christianity in and of itself. So, for our purposes, not one of his bones is broken. I mean, if, if it was, what would that mean? He's not the Passover lamb, or it's not a valid Passover according to the scriptures. So it's this, it's this huge moment where just, <gasps> you're holding your breath, and his bones are not broken. 
He is the Passover lamb. So, um, then back to our original context, we've, we've been looking at, at Passover and how it is that he takes his body, the body of the Passover lamb, and, and gives it to us to eat. Not one of his bones is broken. And then surprisingly, he gives the blood to drink. You can't drink the blood. The life is in the blood. Now he gives us his blood because the life is in the blood. And now it suddenly makes sense. Okay? This is all from the Old Testament. It's all from the Old Testament. Now, where do we go, where do we go next if we want to look at a major, major indicator in the Old Testament of what the Lord's Supper is going to be or what it's going to be about? How about once they have been spared from the angel of death, they pass through the Red Sea, remember? Um, then two things happen. Two things happen. They are baptized in, into Moses through the sea. This is St. Paul's interpretation in 1 Corinthians 10. Do you remember this? So they have a baptism. And then St. Paul mentions that they have a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. Now think back, think back just very concretely here. We don't have to get too fancy. But what's the, what's the food they're eating after they pass through the wilderness? And the, you know, remember they grumble, we don't have anything to eat. Manna, bread from heaven. Okay. Now very briefly, Jesus picks up on this theme himself, doesn't he? In John 6. Your fathers ate the manna that came down from heaven, the bread that came down from heaven, and they died. I am the true bread from heaven. Whoever, and it goes even further than this as the chapter, as the sermon develops, and he ends up saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life. Now then, what's the spiritual drink? Again, just think very simply, very concretely. They're all complaining that they don't have what to drink? Water. And do you remember... Moses um, is told to strike what? The rock. And from that rock flows forth this water. But Paul says that that rock is Christ. And so that's the spiritual drink they have. So now what is Paul referring to in a New Testament context after Jesus has done these things? That, That Christ is our manna. Christ is our bread from heaven. And that Christ's blood... Is, um, is our spiritual drink that we have to drink. You know, there's some, really, there's some really poignant imagery, and I actually think that this is somewhat what John is drawing on in his gospel and his eyewitness testimony. Okay, I don't know about you, but, okay, you've got the rock and the rock that Moses strikes, and here's, here's Moses' rod, okay, and he does one of these. Wouldn't it equally be striking the rock if he did one of these? Yeah, if he took the butt of the staff and struck it. Now, and then what flows? Water. And when Jesus is struck, what flows? Water and blood. And this is a big deal for John because he sees that whatever happens is miraculous. But do you see what's going on there? Do you see the symmetry? Absolutely. Okay, so to retrace our steps, the Lord's Supper goes all the way back to Adam and Eve eating and to being restored by eating. It goes all the way back to uh, Noah drinking and becoming naked, and thus we drink and become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
It goes all the way back to the Passover lamb whose flesh is eaten. It goes all the way back to the wilderness wanderings, the true bread from heaven and the true spiritual drink. All of these things foreshadow and prefigure as types the Lord's Supper. Now let me tell you something. All of these things that we're talking about, are they, are they literal eating and drinking or is it symbolic eating and drinking? Yeah, it's literal. Sometimes it's very impregnated with theological meaning, but it's all literal and all impregnated with deep theological meaning and substance all the way up. God is telling this story that takes millennia to tell. And because American evangelicals are terrible at understanding stories, what's the climax? Ah, that he gives us crackers and a grape juice and says, think about me in the corner. Ah! Ah, I mean, that just, that just hurts me on a human level, <laughs> like, 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 like an appreciation of artistry and literature level. My heart breaks. That's, that's the climax? No wonder, no wonder. And forgive me, this is a little pointed, but no, no wonder you find this trend within evangelicalism that they're constantly looking back to the Old Testament and trying to engage in satyrs and temple rebuilds and this, that, and the other thing. Because what? Those were the glory days. You see, they've got the whole thing inverted. We live in the weak and pathetic times. Wouldn't it have been something to go back to David's time and see the glory of the Lord? I mean, to which David would be like, wouldn't it be amazing to be in your time and have the fullness of the new covenant poured out? You know, we live, we live in the very best and most blessed of all times that this earth has known, in the fullness of the New Testament, in the fullness of the Revelation. The only final thing that is to come is communing with Christ, no longer in faith but by sight. We live in, you would not objectively, if you could live in any time you wanted, this is the time you would choose to live. This is the high point and climax of all of it. So no, we don't do, we don't do this millennia-long story building and end with an anticlimax of, of have, some, have some smuckers and some oyster crackers, uh, which is what I was offered when I visited a, a very popular church <coughs> saddleback um, <laughs> and, and kind of nearly wept, uh, nearly wept just, just at this reality, to say nothing of ignoring the Lord's words. It's like, that's where I can hardly even make the argument simply on the basis of the Lord's words anymore. It's like, well, if you don't understand his words, let's, let's start at page one of the scriptures and walk all the way back together. Now, there are many other things to which we could point. Um, I'll, I'll simply just allude to, allude to one other, I think, at this, at this time. And that would be, because this, is, this will touch on our Lord's words, that will be, the way we think of the Old Testament is we think of it as the collection of documents. And then we sometimes think of it in terms of uh, time. Um, the time from, um, sorry, I'm doing this backwards to you, but the time from uh, Adam through Christ. That would sort of be the Old Testament. And it's fine to talk about the Old Testament in, in both of those ways. Um, but when we talk about the Old Testament proper, what the Old Covenant, what the Old Testament itself is, what are we talking about? There we're talking about Mount Sinai. Okay, you remember? And Moses, and there famously he receives the Ten Commandments. Okay, but there's, and while that is in effect, you know, the essence of the, 
of the Old Covenant. There's more that goes on there. The Old Covenant is begun when what, uh, what ritualistic act takes place. Moses takes blood and does what with it? Splashes it on the people. Yeah, I don't know if this is the right action. Maybe he sprinkles it. I don't know. But the people get splashed with blood. So in a moment when we go piece by piece through our Lord's words, what does he say? This is the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant in my blood, no longer the blood of bulls, no longer the blood of the old sacrificial system, inaugurated when Moses splashed whoever was there with the blood, now inaugurated by my blood, splashing the blood of my disciples, and then, and then it's my blood that carries through the new covenant, the New Testament. Was the blood that Moses used symbolic blood? Afraid it was the real stuff. What about the blood of Jesus? How anticlimactic to have that be like, well, I'm just, it's not really my blood. Of course it's his blood. If it's not his blood, there's no covenant. If it's not his blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Who's, who argues this way? The author of Hebrews. It's like one of his main points in terms of this sphere of theology is, hey, if there's no blood, there's no forgiveness. If there's no blood, there's no covenant. Okay. So, one other event happens at Sinai in the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant in the blood of bulls, the New Covenant in the blood of Christ. But one other event happens at Sinai. Do you remember? The elders at some point are brought up to the top of the mountain with Moses. Do you remember what they do? They have a meal. And who's there at the meal? God. They have a meal in communion with God. You can go back to Exodus and take a look at this if you want. So what is the Old Covenant? What are the high points of the Old Covenant? Well, it's inaugurated with blood and with a communal meal with God. When Jesus says, this is the New Covenant, what do we see? It's not the blood of bulls, it's His blood, and it is a communion with God. The only difference now is, you don't have to be an elder to be invited. You have to be a disciple to be invited, baptized and taught, and then welcomed into the mount, which is Mount Calvary of God, to feast upon the meal of forgiveness and communion with God. Okay? So there are all these Old Testament stories that loom so large and factor so greatly and give us so much context into what our Lord Jesus is saying. We can hardly read his words without reflecting on these very biblical teachings. And again, these things I'm giving to you the vast majority of them can be found in one way, shape, or form in the New Testament documents themselves. I mean, this isn't the wit and wisdom of Rhodey. This is the wit and wisdom of Christ, of the apostles, and of the very best of our church fathers. All right, so now um, let me pause there, and let me see if you have any questions about the context that will hopefully enrich our understanding and reading of, of Jesus' words as we go through them again. Any, any thoughts you have? Yes, sir. Please. It, oh, yes. it strikes me that there is one difference between the, the Garden of Eden uh, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of the cross, and that is in the one case, we were commanded not to eat of it, and in the other case, we were commanded to eat and drink of it. Yeah. yeah. So it's, a, it's sort of a difference that kind of brings in 
why the drinking also? You know, that in the one case you're commanded not to do it, and the other case, this is the new commandment to, to both yeah, right. eat and drink of it. Yeah, there's a new thing going on here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's all kinds of fun to be had. I just, I don't want to belabor it. I, this is the kind of thing I think about or try to think about when I'm in traffic. <laughs> you know, I'd, or I'd rather be doing something else. Um, because there's so much beauty and fun in thinking about this. Uh, I'll just indulge me for a second. Um, how did, that, how did that tree and that fruit look to Eve, we're told? Do you remember? Pleasing to the eye and good for food. What is the, and, yet, and yet what? God had attached his word to that tree and to that fruit and said, there's death there. So, so, so it's beautiful, but there's death. Already, already faith is required because your sight, your experience, your knowledge, everything is telling you this is life, this is good. And God says, uh-uh, inside of it is death. Now think about this. Think about this. Oh, gosh, this is so... You have to love God as an artist. It's unbelievable. It's just unimaginable. So what does he do, in the, what does he do with Christ? What does that tree look like? Does it look good? Does what hangs from it look good for food? How could you come up with something more opposite? It looks ugly and hideous and horrific and horrible. And that which hangs from it is the most abominable thing for us to consider to eat, you know, or right up there with the most abominable things. Cannibalism. How does, how does God cover? So he covers this in the, in the image of the cross and the body and blood of Jesus and cannibalism and all this detestable, horrific. And then what does his word say? In this is life. You see what he did at the beginning? Beauty, good for food, everything. In this is death. You see what he does now? Ugly, cannibalism, everything. In this is life. You see the symmetry? God wants to be believed. And in the Lord's Supper, what he's calling you to do is he's calling you and me individually, personally, back to the garden to make it right. To make it right. In Adam, we all fell. In Adam, we were all sitting there. We all, we all thought it was good and pleasing to the eye. And isn't that, really, isn't that really the archetype of all sin? It's the archetype of all sin. It's, hey, this looks good and fun or true and right or wise and practical. It's the archetype of all sin, but inside of it is rot and death. And so the archetype, uh, the Christian archetype that, that reverses all of this, by the way, is, is God sets before us doctrines that seem to us completely noxious, like we're all sinners, like we're all damned, like there's nothing we can do about it. He sets before us doctrines that are completely noxious to our reason, to our understanding. We detest and despise all of it. And yet he calls us to believe this very thing. So what we find in the Lord's Supper is, is this, if you expand it out, it's, the, it's this entire archetype. It's this entire symmetry uh, in all our daily lives and experiences and that of all people, God wants to be believed. And the whole New Testament, the whole Christ act is a profound reversal of, of our fall. It's our restoration. All right. So I, I belabored the point. I'm sorry for that tangent. But once, you know, the church fathers sort of opened this window and then, and they did it by pointing me to Jesus and Paul. And then once this window in this world is opened, you start exploring around and it's endless joy. It's endless fun. This is a foretaste of heaven. 
because you start to see the scriptures so differently and you start to see your life and your experience so much, so much more profoundly. Well, I'll go off on a further tangent if I continue, so I better stop. Yeah, thank you for that comment. Um, was there another comment or question, please? Uh, one thing I thought is the first miracle Christ performed at the wedding feast. He changed oh, yeah. water to wine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And then he changes wine to blood. And I, in my mind, I thought, oh, my goodness. If you, do you really believe that he changed water to wine? Are you rejecting that too? It's, it's, if you believe he changed water to wine, why can't you accept mm -hmm. wine to blood? Well, thank you for bringing that up. So all I've done is, uh, let, me, let me do this because this will be a perfect segue and transition. Are there any other questions or comments we want to address uh, before we move on? There's a couple. Paula, when I look at you in just a minute, remind me of uh, Jesus turning water into wine. That'll trigger me to where I need to go next. It, in the context of our discussion, uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching and refers to uh, eating his uh, flesh and, and, and drinking his blood. Can you comment on how that, is that referring to, pointing to the Lord's Supper, or is that something different? How can we understand that? In order to give you the John 6 answer, it, it's very thorough, it's very complicated. I, I can walk you through that. It would just take me about 20 minutes to do so. Um, Suffice it to say, the present state is we Lutherans, you're allowed to take John 6 as referring to the sacrament. You're allowed to think of it as not referring to the sacrament. Um, just full disclosure, I don't know how you can read it and not come to a conclusion that it says something about the sacrament. I mean, for crying out loud, just on its face, if I read it to my kids, they'd say, well, it talks about eating his body and drinking his blood. Not what the supper's all about. So, you know, it. So based on my four-year-old or five-year-old uh, reading of scripture, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with it is. Okay, that's, that's where I personally fall on that. Um, what's interesting to remember, and this will be my short answer, is too late, right? Um, think chronologically as, as best as we can. We don't, we don't have the perfect numbers, but think chronologically. Our Lord, in all likelihood, um, institutes the supper somewhere around uh, 33 AD, right? The night before his death. The next gospel to be written, best indicators are that it's Matthew, written in the 40s. Maybe Mark, written in the late 40s or the early 50s. After that comes Luke, after that comes John. Some people put John... Um, as late as the 70s. I, and I mean by some people, conservative Lutheran scholars. But what could we say? What could we say at minimum without getting into the weeds? We could say that between the time in which Jesus institutes the supper on the night in which he's betrayed and the time in which John's gospel is written, we're talking about decades. Okay? What's been going on for those decades? Christians have been gathering just like us. We've been baptized. We're communing. We're learning from our Lord and his apostles what communion is. We're learning to think this biblical way. All right? And then John drops his gospel, and in it has this section about Jesus being the bread of life and eating his body and drinking his blood. In a sacramental context, how do you read that? Sacramentally. That's a no-brainer. 
as a no-brainer. Now, what is one of the interesting things that John does? And what is one of the interesting things about this sort of expanded chronology? If a bunch of foolish first century Christians were over-literalizing the text, and Jesus said, this is my body, here is John's time as the one who is there to correct them and say, ah, this symbolizes, back off the language and make it symbolic, make it a little lighter. What instead does John do, the very last of the gospel writers, what instead does he do? Emphasizes it. He goes like this. Instead of soma, body, he does sarks, flesh. Instead of, uh, oh, I forget the exact Greek words, but estheo, eat my body, um, estheo, eat my soma, he says, um, I forget what it is. Do you remember, Stephen, if, and I'm too lazy to look it up, but something like, something like, like, oh, I can't remember the Greek word, but it's chewing. So instead of eating body, it's chewing flesh. What does John do in his gospel all these times later? Doubles down. And what happens after he puts, puts these words, recalls these words of Christ, gnaw on my flesh? What happens? Everybody leaves. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what, are you going to leave too? And what does Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We pull those out of context. What does it mean in context? What are the words of eternal life? Eat my flesh, chew on my flesh, drink my blood, and you have life in you. These are the words of eternal life. What is John doing in the context of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, whenever he's writing this? Is he backing Christians off this literal view? No, he is doubled, doubling down and he's saying, and if you don't like it, there's the door. Or are you going to stand with Peter and with the twelve and say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Even though this is a hard saying, we believe. So that's what John's doing rhetorically in John 6 with his gospel. Yes, please. I remember. I turned right to it, and it, usually I can't do that, but I remember when we were studying on Thursday morning's Exodus. Yeah. And it just blew my mind that in Exodus 25, it says, you shall set the bread of presence on the table oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. before me regularly. And I thought, sure. Oh my gosh, it's been happening that long. Yeah, why would it be called the bread of presence? Well, I mean, of all things, right? Of all yeah, things, it could be really called the gave holy me the bread. Chills, or I thought, the bread of tastiness. Of course. Or, yeah. Of course. It's the bread, it's, of all things, it's the bread of presence. Then what is Christ going to say? I'm present in this bread. <laughs> this is the bread of my presence. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's one more of many, many other Old Testament things that allude to this and, and show forth this light. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think the infinitive form is trogon. It's like to chew, to chew on my sarks, my flesh. That's, I think, the Greek behind it. But it is amplified by John, and it is rhetorically, it is you're either with Christ on this or here's the door. Please. Just real quick, I wondered if what role God telling Moses to speak to the rock uh, rather than strike it plays in this symmetry that you're discussing. 
Yeah, so later on, after this, this time where God tells him to strike it and he strikes it and everything's good, later on, there's this, um, yeah, there's this, uh, I want you to speak to the rock, and instead of speaking to it, he strikes it. Now, and then Moses can't enter the, the promised land. What I think is going on there, and I'm following church fathers in this, um, what I think is going on there is, of course, this is just technically, historically speaking, this is Moses' sin. And he, he chooses it, and he, but God is going to work that evil for a greater good. And the greater good is the typology that emerges there, which is a little different. Moses, representing the law, strikes Christ, who he ought not strike. Now, in the historical case, because God told him to speak, but in the typological case, why should the law not strike Christ? Because he's innocent. When Moses strikes that which he ought not strike, and the law, he cannot go into the promised land. When the law strikes that which it ought not strike, it's accusation. It cannot go into the promised land. And so just as Moses is forbidden, so then the accusation of the law is forbidden. And that's, that's the promised land in which we Christians live even now. And the, the tree in the midst of the garden that we receive even now is the cross and the Lord's Supper. And that's a, a foretaste of the feast to come. You can, you can imagine and, and typologically envision the fact of this, like, now but not yet. And right now we're talking about the, the now, what we sometimes call inaugurated eschatology. We can already start to see with our own eyes things being made new. You all are believers in Christ. You all are answering that, that symmetry of Genesis where we did not believe. Now you are believing. I can see that and understand that. I am already seeing the new heavens and the new earth beginning before my very eyes. You see how that works, for example? And, and when you start to see the sacraments that way and everything else, you, see, you start to see heaven breaking into earth and a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth even now in front of us. Yeah, so you don't need psychedelics. You don't need art. You don't need to sit in a sweat house in a teepee. You don't need to try to hallucinate or you know, sit in meditation thinking about nothing until something comes. The, the Bible is frankly, the Holy Spirit frankly, is all you need to have a completely altered and different worldview and perception. And frankly, it's not all uniform. There's all these different ways to think. There's all these different dynamics. I mean, it's fantastic. Who would have thought? It's all in the scriptures. Okay, thank you for those, thank you for those comments. Um, Back to Paula's point. Uh, so I've done, the, I've done the Old Testament, and maybe, maybe if I can, I'll wait till next week to do the New Testament, because what we find, just as the Old Testament is, seems to be almost, pardon the hyperbole, nothing but a catechesis leading to the Lord's Supper, <laughs> so also the New Testament. Let me give you just one example. Jesus is born into which city? Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem is? The house of bread. Here is the bread of life. What is he laid into? I'm sorry? A, uh, a manger, which is a feeding trough. You know, the only, thing, the only thing less subtle would be if they laid him on a dinner plate. 
So even from the very beginning, if you, have, if you have eyes to see given you by the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament, even from the very beginning of the New Testament, we'll walk through some of these next week, I promise, um, you start to see that the whole New Testament is, again, pardon the hyperbole, nothing but a catechesis leading up to the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is the New Testament. That cup of his is the New Testament. And of course, the cross is right behind it. Isn't this a beautiful picture? Because the cross and the cup are one. And that is the New Testament. Um, in fact, if you, look at, if you go looking through your scriptures, which I'd encourage, tell me New Testament documents. I mean, you can include the old, but you spend a lot of time for no good reason. Tell me, no, tell me New Testament documents what the New Testament is. You find it in two places. In Hebrews, it's the cross. In the Gospels, or in everywhere else, it's right here on Jesus' lips, this cup. So Hebrews, the cross, Jesus, the cup. That's the New Testament. All right, let us, uh, let us with our remaining time, jump into the words of Christ, bottom of 28, and then next week we'll do the New Testament catechesis on the supper, and we'll get into the benefit of this eating and drinking. So, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, now we're poised to see this as, as Passover. We, it's, worth, it's worth, even though the, the linguistics don't point to it here, it's worth remembering that the way that the day and night are conceived in the Hebrew mind is different. Um, remember, uh, in, in the beginning of Genesis, you can see this. It always goes evening and morning the first day, evening and morning the second day. Why doesn't it go morning and evening? Well, because they're not American. Um, so, so it's conceived of difference. So the day begins at sundown. That's when the day begins. So it, you have to wrap your head around this just very briefly. So when Jesus institutes the supper slowly after the, or I mean shortly after the sun has set, it's the beginning of the day. On that same day, that's the evening, on the next, by the next morning, he's what? Crucified. His crucifixion and his cup are on the same day uh, by way of Hebrew reckoning. It's just worth keeping in mind. So on the night when he was betrayed, of course, he was betrayed by Judas. Took bread, and when he had given thanks, we talked about that, that's the word uh, Eucharist, from which we, we name the supper sometimes. Now he takes the bread, he breaks it. Okay, too much is loaded into the breaking of the bread. Why does he break it? Why does he take the, the loaf of bread and break it? Because the alternative is here, take a bite, here, take a bite, here, take... This, okay, he takes the bread and he breaks it in order to give it to them. Why do we know this isn't loaded with symbolism? Well, in the first place, has he yet said it's his body? No. So this isn't a symbol of his body being broken. Second of all, if it was his body being broken, what's the problem? Not one of his bones is broken! Yeah, so, so this whole thing we've got, I think it came out of the 1970s, of... Uh, Look at Jesus' body 
broken for you. Oh, I cringe when I hear that because it's like, no, do you not know the scriptures? His body was not broken, nor is that good theology. I mean, you're not paying very close attention to Jesus' words because he never says, this is my body, and then breaks it. Rather, he breaks it, it's completely functional, and then says, this is my body. Okay, so keep that in mind as you read through here. So he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. Now this tells us again who the Lord's Supper is for. A disciple, according to Matthew's Gospel, make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing them and teaching them. So a disciple is one who is baptized and taught. Okay? It is the disciples who receive the Lord's Supper. One who is baptized and one who is taught. Again, it's not a hospitality meal. It's not an evangelistic meal. It is a meal for the disciples for those who are baptized and taught. So, he gives it to the disciples and he says, Take, eat, this is my body. What does this refer to? The bread, obviously. Obviously. It's not until the 16th century that we have people playing ridiculous games. Ridiculous games. I think it was, I think it was Martin Bucer who was amongst the Lutherans but turned out to be a radical reformer. And I think that this was his theory. Jesus took bread, broke it, gave him the bread, and then said to them, This is my body. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. I wasn't sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, so this is your alternative, right? This is, oh. So obviously, he takes the bread and he gives it, the bread, to them. And he says, This is my body, which is given for you. Not translatable. Not translatable. But that, that for is who pair, at least in some of the accounts, and, and it carries the weight of on behalf of you, for your sake. So that, so that again, hypothetically, if you just sort of had these first, is there, is there an atonement sense of these words? Yes. He's not just, in English, it kind of sounds like, hey, you know, this present is for you, like it, I'm giving it to you. That for doesn't carry the weight of who pair on behalf of you. So it's, it's there. Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Where is it given? Here and on the cross. Theologically, they're one in the same. There's no separation. Given on the cross, given for you. What happens on the cross is given to you for your blessing and benefit. All right? Um, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And then that is the action of the supper. Here's where the institution proper comes in. I mean, up until this point, it's just something Jesus has done. Right? It's just a description of what he's done. He took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples, and this is my body. If that's all we had, it, we would probably view it kind of like the foot washing. Like, it's something that happened. It's a kind of model from which we can extract theological knowledge. Um, but, but that's it. We don't celebrate it. So the next words are, properly speaking, the words of institution or the words of institution within the words of institution. This do in remembrance of me. What do? The whole action that went before. And so you have the taking the, uh, of the bread, the distribution of the bread. Um, one of the reasons why we don't break it um, is because it's already broken. It comes in those, those uh, wafer forms. And that, for good reason, they help to not get crumbs everywhere. That's fine. Um, nothing wrong with using unleavened bread or any kind of bread, frankly. Uh, okay, so that's, um, 
that's the this do, is we take bread, we, and you'll see that we do all of this in our divine service. We give thanks. We, we don't break it because we don't have to. Um, the other reason we don't break it is we don't have time for that. Maybe I'll touch on it next week. <laughs> There's a controversy with the Calvinists where um, in the forced union, this, by the way, is what shoved all the Lutherans over to America. Here we are, yay. Um, is because the, the Prussians, um, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. Stephen Mann's left. Um, was forcing Reformed and Lutherans legally into the same churches. You're saying, hey, your differences aren't that much. You have to go to church together. And so, so you've got Lutherans who believe in the true presence and Reformed who don't. When the Reformed minister was up there, he, would, he told all his people this. He, he told the people, when I break it, it proves that it's not the body of Christ. And this is terrible theology all around. But when I break it, it proves that it's not the body of Christ because you can't break the body of Christ. So all the Lutherans sitting in those pews when the, when the reformed pastor is up there and he goes, pop, what does that mean? Not the body of Christ. So that pop <laughs> has echoed in Lutheran ears for uh, 170 years or something like that. Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons why we tend not to do that. Now, from time to time you, you see that and it's coming back because we're sort of losing that institutional memory and that's fine and that's good. There's nothing wrong with it, okay? And obviously if a Lutheran minister is, is breaking the bread, um, he's not doing that to confess the unreal presence or the real absence of our Lord. All right, so this is what we're to do. Then break the bread, give it to the disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Okay, there's the first part. We're thoroughly out of time. Next week, the next part. Um, next week, New Testament on the Lord's Supper, and then into the uh, blessings and benefits, and then, hey, we're done with foundations of faith. All right, the Lord be with you.